Jake, besides pro wrestling Jerry Lawler, you done any Kaufman stuff? Um, I, I I enjoy the fact that he fucks with people, but as I become more of a showrunner and produce shows, <laughs> um, I fucking hate it when people fuck with an audience because then they it, it, nobody can sit around and deal with a long bit like that. They'll just get up and leave and never spend money with you ever again. <laughs> so like, as much as I appreciate the art form of Andy Kaufman, sometimes as the guy who takes the money at the door, when I see people fuck with people like that, um, it tends to just run people away and no money is generated but at the same time too as an artist you appreciate uh moments like that and i've always appreciated andy kaufman for what he is but man in today's era where you can switch the channel move on and get out of stuff quickly i don't know how an andy kaufman would would exist today because nobody has that much patience to to have a bit pay off quite as genuinely as that it's so true all right, this is Tim Bell Pod, a wrestling podcast that always ends kind of sad. I'm Nick, and I am from Burbank, which is about 15 minutes from Hollywood, so I will still sue you. Out in Lincolnton, North Carolina, we have Micah J. Loving. You didn't even do the proper make fun of redneck. Linkerton is the way to fucking <laughs> properly do it. Linkerton. You gotta add that, too. And the last man ready to stomp a tent pole hole in your ass and camp it dry, the Mad Scout Dick Batting. Once again, Nicholas, doing a better job of writing intros for me than I do myself. I appreciate that. Also, do uh, when I think of Lincolnton, North Carolina, I think of the prison that I wrestled at one time. Yeah, that was a good I, story. When I, when, I hear, when, I, when I hear Lincolnton, that's what I think of every single time. Without giving away too much, I wanted you guys to give your elevator pitches on uh, Andy Kaufman. Micah, you do Andy as a comedian. Jake, you do Andy's legacy in wrestling. Andy was one of those. He kind of honed and created my appreciation for comedy in a way. It's You don't really have to be funny. You just have to be interesting. If you're getting some type of emotional reaction, whether it be anger, confusion, joy, laughter as long as he could pull something out of you that was strong and that would captivate you he felt like he did a good job and that's that's truly how i look at most art so yeah that was andy he just wanted you to stay there and look at him and be in awe didn't matter why andy as a wrestler he basically is somebody who has enough celebrity that he can leverage his way into the business but at the same time too he understands that he's in over his head and he is just merely playing wrestler so he understands that he has to be as respectful and as nice as possible to all the wrestlers and give as much care and respect to the sport itself but in front of the camera he will disrespect everything and make people as mad as possible because that is one of the few forums where he can do that and he's allowed to do that and that type of behavior is encouraged and generates money especially at that particular time in professional wrestling all right well andrew jeffrey kaufman was born january 17th 1949 in new york city bullshit nick he was born in caspiar and please just for me and everyone <laughs> can we start this off by having a 10 second moment of silence for all those poor, unfortunate Caspians who drowned when their island sunk to the bottom of the Caspian Sea under mysterious circumstances. Okay, 10 seconds.
So Andy was the oldest of three children growing up in Great Neck, Long Island, New York. Uh, it was an upper middle class upbringing as his mother Janice was a former fashion model turned stay at home mom and his father Stanley Robert Kaufman was a jewelry salesman. Andy was a painfully shy kid growing up but he found an outlet in performing. He'd lock himself in his room all day, putting on shows and pretending that there was a camera in his wall, not much different than all these psychopaths who are trying to do stand-up on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. When I saw Man in the Moon and they showed that clip of him playing and in his room, it was very reminiscent of when I used to play in my room. I used to take action figures and different types of yeah. action, action figures and different brands, and then I'd invent my own like story arcs i would take silly putty and like do them up like if i if i had three power rangers but i needed five i would take silly putty out of like these generic action figures and make them like the second and uh, the fourth (laughs) and the fifth power ranger and then i would have these big story arcs or i'd create these characters and then i'd write down the beats of the story and play them out as if it's a movie as if i was a director so when i saw man on the moon i go to my sister and goes hey remember when you used to make fun of me all the time for playing in my room the way that I did with my action figures. Well, Andy Kaufman, this guy who was a genius, did the same exact thing. (laughs) My my basic setup was I would get like 16 figures and I would set up like a March Madness tournament style where you'd have matchups and rankings (laughs) and everything, and then you'd build to the championship of the two most badass action figures. Nick? I did something similar. I I had a fuck ton of wrestling action figures, and I I would keep some ongoing stories. I had an Edge action figure that I didn't like, and, and, and an Al Snow, and they were my job guys, Edge Aww. and Al Snow. Andy would also begin performing live at a very young age, playing records and cartoons and trying to do jokes at children's birthday parties at just nine years old. Andy also loved a few more normal things growing up. He liked Mighty Mouse, he developed a deep love for Elvis Presley, and he loved pro wrestling. Three things that would influence Andy's life and career in one way or the other. And even at the age of eight, at Madison Square Garden, he got to see Buddy Rogers lose the world title to Bruno San Martino. And Andy said that being there live, seeing the crowd reactions, hearing the, the cheers, the boos, the, the frenzy all the people were whipped into, was something that Andy would spend the rest of his life chasing and trying to recreate. And it was that day he decided he wanted to be a pro wrestler. Also, one fun thing I saw, Andy hated going to summer camp, which I'm in total agreement with. Fuck summer camp. I love summer camp. Oh, I hate and it. of course, I'm, I, I'm an Eagle Scout. Scout camp was pretty awesome. I, I, I was just trying to like make all the merit badges. And then one summer I got more than enough merit badges and they didn't offer the merit badges I needed so I spent the entire week uh, getting certified to be a lifeguard so I thought summer camp was pretty fun wow this to- that was a good kayfabe story don't know whether to believe it don't know whether to believe it determined to be a performer of some kind Andy kept writing and honing his act by high school Andy was in a bit of a fringe group he never really cared about things like grades or being the popular kid Instead, he dove into weed, booze, and acid, yeah. and he apparently also did some amateur wrestling. Again, something we're going to see come up very soon. After graduating from Great Neck North High School in 67, Andy took a year off before enrolling at the now defunct two-year Graham Junior College in Boston. 
During this gap year, he discovered transcendental meditation, which would become a massive part of his life. And I think this let him focus, gave him a sense of peace, and allowed him to give some direction to this chaotic, artistic energy he had. Have you guys ever tried transcendental? I, I have. I'm surprised Nick has, since he lives in California. I, 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 I have. be all over it now. I've read David Lynch, the crazy-ass filmmaker. He has a book that he just vouches for it hardcore and he has an entire book dedicated to transcendental meditation that reading it really made me want to try it yeah i listened to david lynch talk about it on russell brand's podcast (laughs) but yeah i I fucks with it okay well i i've thought about it but the person that sold me on it of me possibly doing it here here's a shocker sinbad Whoa. Sin- Whoa! Sinbad is Sinbad is big into transcendental meditation so much. In fact, he was telling the story one time about how he had this. Op- he was laying on the bed, he was meditating, and there was this object on the opposite end of the bed. And he laid down and opened his hand, and he, he said he was able to move that object <laughs> into his hand Ugh. using meditation. I, he's confusing so, shit with the force, correct? <laughs> yeah, pr- pr- pretty much. He say so. That's what I understand with transcendental meditation. It's basically the force. <laughs> cool. So and and Sinbad has it. And if you've seen his stand up, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> While in college, Andy studied television production, and he also starred in his own campus TV show, Uncle Andy's Funhouse. Soon after, Andy started hitting the mics, performing at coffee houses, thinking he was ready to do an hour two months in, pestering headliners on Twitter and developing his act, as well as writing a one-man play, Gosh. Which I have as in book form, but I think I later sold it on eBay because it's out of print for like $100. After graduating in 71, Andy began performing stand-up comedy at various small clubs on the East Coast, including the Improv back when Bud Friedman was still in New York. Yeah. Jake kind of touched on this. For someone starting out and kind of grinding his way through the open mics, the the bar shows, the emceeing, with his style, shit had to be weird at times. Yeah. Like, you, you always see that guy at an open mic and, you know, you hear somebody's jokes like 30 different times, but they got to work on it. And you, they're your friend. You listen to it. You laugh when they need to. And it's this. But then there's like those that weird guy <laughs> that is always on the verge of pissing management off so much (laughs) that this mic won't ever happen again or like make somebody mad who's actually like buying drinks and food and they're never going to come back again and then this mic doesn't exist anymore but as a comedian you appreciate the, the the wild swings that they're that they're doing and you appreciate them trying something different every time you try going off but then sometimes if they're trying the similar bit and you've seen that bit before that's got to be excruciating as well so it's just high risk high reward type comedy that um, you appreciate as a performer but someone who is a club owner it's it's got to be nerve-wracking like oh no Andy's on stage yeah but I think around this time, from what I read, I mean, it was the early 70s. I mean, what we know stand-up now is totally different. Practically everyone going up there was almost experimenting and trying something new. I mean, this was, uh, Richard Lewis, Richard Belzer, Leno, Larry David was going up. I mean, at this time, I know they were just like, go up there and fucking try anything. And Andy did exactly that. 
And uh, Andy would eventually make his way out to L.A. and become a staple at the Comedy Store. And the Comedy Store is, or at least was, the place to make it if you were a stand-up comedian. Like, once you become a regular at the store, you're gonna make it. It's just a matter of when. And just to name a few people from Andy's time at the store, some of his peers, Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, Jay Leno, David Letterman, and that's leaving out tons of people. So let's quickly get into a few highlights of Andy's comedy career. I want to hear what you guys think. Before we do that, let's take time to pause for a track by Normal Dennis. Jebediah Get Down, here on 103.5 The Mark.
right, you're listening to 103.5 The Mark, and we're back discussing Andy Kaufman's Foreign Guy. One of Andy's first great bits, I guess, characters was the foreign man, and Kaufman would use the foreign man accent in nightclubs in the early 70s. It was this character that started to get Kaufman a little heat, getting him into the improv. And it's more or less like an anti-humor bit where he'd purposely do a bad imitation of famous people while staying in character as the foreign man, a meek, high-pitched, heavy-accented voice claiming to be a man from Caspiar, a fictional island in the Caspian Sea. It was more or less uh, a setup to get to a bigger bit, normally his Elvis Presley impersonation, something he had been practicing since he was a kid and it's not as much of an impression as it is andy literally becoming Elvis presley before <laughs> your eyes it's insane getting exposed to andy kaufman and seeing the way he would manipulate an audience he was such a good actor as foreign guy foreign man that you would really feel sorry for him and you would groan at his bombing but then you would kind of be endeared and warm up to him but then when the lights dropped and the music started uh, drum rolling and then he looked back with the Elvis lip and then nailed the fuck out of Elvis, you had realized that you had been had. He had got you. He won you over. And it was one of those like your brain explodes. Holy shit. What is this guy? Who is this guy? Man, that was amazing. And uh, Elvis Presley's favorite impersonator of himself was Andy fucking Kaufman. That tells you how good he was at it. If anything, the setup before of him doing Foreign Man and doing so poorly at the impersonations was probably the thing that enhanced the Elvis Presley impersonation. Totally. If he just came out and did the Presley, it doesn't mean as much. But much like in pro wrestling, the finish, the the end, you're, you're building to that. You're working to that, much like every great uh, storytelling aspect. You're building to the end. This is all a setup. And also, to committing to what you're doing in the moment to to build to this specific moment much like anything in joke telling if you know you got if you got you know you got a little bit longer setup and but you know you got this dynamite punchline that works every time you you have a bit more confidence you can have a little more fun you can have some fun with the setup because you know at the end you're gonna stick the landing right here much like in a pro wrestling match like hey we can mess a few things up in the beginning when we're feeling out because we know we got this hot finish in the end and we know we're gonna nail it so it's it, all the principles apply jake nailed it. it it's it's just simple storytelling done perfectly andy understood context and how to build up and create the context needed for one little moment or one little joke to hit so fucking hard to make it something special that it not many people understood context and how to control it as much as Andy. It was almost like he was a great misdirection joke writer, like someone like a Emo Phillips or, yeah. or Anthony Jeselnik. But instead of doing it with words, he built like this entire world in front of you where the misdirection would be this giant physical bit. And then he would tag it with the thank you very much. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, masterful joke writing and physical comedy like smashed together yep. with like props and music i mean it was just <laughs> yeah. watch the um johnny carson segment andy would also use his foreign man as part of the first ever season of saturday night live but it was the foreign man character that landed andy a spot on abc sitcom taxi as laca gravis appearing on 79 of the 114 episodes from 1978 to 83. I remember watching this at my grandma's apartment when I was a kid. I'd assume it was reruns uh, since this was before I was born. I was uh, 
I was way too young to get it, but I remember liking it uh, specifically because of Laka. But I mean, fucking Danny DeVito, Andy, Tony Danza. I mean, did you guys Christopher ever? Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys ever get in a taxi? Yeah. Jake's like, you left out Christopher Lloyd, you motherfucker. <laughs> That's the first person I think right? of in a taxi. Like, I've, I've built my whole life off that character. <laughs> like, disheveled, wearing denim. That's how I'm going to be in the next three months. <laughs> Andy dislikes sitcoms and their scripted nature, but Andy's manager, George Shapiro, convinced him that it would be a quick route to stardom. He'd make good, steady money, and then he could put all that into his own act. And George Shapiro is a fucking beast on his own right. Not only did he work with Andy, he worked with Jerry Seinfeld and was a producer on Seinfeld. Oh, damn. I didn't know that. Well, Shapiro, great. Understood the business. Like, hey, you get that fuck money, and then <laughs> you can do whatever you want. But you got to make this. You got to make that fuck money first. True. You got to make all make all of it, and then like you could tell people fuck off all you want, and then do what you want to do. You do your like, big blockbuster, then you do your art film, then the bullshit back and forth. Yeah. To to show off how just fucking talented Andy was on a show that he wasn't even passionate about. Not only did he crush it Kaufman was nominated for a Golden Globe Award and Best Supporting Actor in a Series in 79 and 81 just whatever just I'll just get nominated for awards for this fucking gig I hate and you know I mean it would have been the shortest acceptance speech in the history of ever thank you very much <laughs> that'd been it alright and then we get to Tony fucking Clifton I, I guess Tony is kind of a hack lounge singer insult comic who would open for Andy Kaufman at clubs. Uh, sometimes it was Andy performing as Clifton. Sometimes it was his brother, Michael, but it was usually Andy's right-hand man, Bob Zamuda. I love the way that Zamuda explains how Andy came up with Tony. And it's basically, he talks about how like people go to the movies and they see villains on the screen. Or like with Andy, which I'm sure it's so much transition from pro wrestling. You have bad guy wrestlers. So why can't you have a villain on stage with the crowd? Why why is it acceptable in this one avenue of art, but it's, it's not okay when there's live people around in front of you? You're just like, I want to create a villain, and this is who this motherfucker is. Yeah, Clifton was a fucking psychopath. This just popped in my head when you, when you started talking about Tony Clifton. Well, I forgot this happened. In one of the New Orleans Russell cons, back before like I was going to be in the ten man tag man versus women intergender match, originally there wasn't a spot for me on the Russell con show, but there was this idea thrown around because Joey was going to dress up like Andy Kaufman and wrestle Jerry the King Lawler. Holy shit! And there was discussion, and this idea was thrown around and batted around. It never landed. <laughs> But the thought process was that you're going to have Joey come out as Andy Kaufman, and then they threw around the idea of me coming out as Tony Clifton and insulting <laughs> everybody on a live microphone oh and just taking a punch from Jerry Lawler oh dressed up God. like uh, Tony Clifton. So there was there was discussion that I was going to second Joey Ryan <laughs> as Tony Clifton while he's dressed as Andy Kaufman. Like, there was actual this i was working on the impersonation i was writing <laughs> jokes but it never got yeah. to the point that i had to buy a leisure suit please whenever this is all fucking over you guys have to do that because that would be incredible and then you get somebody else to shave their head 
Get the same body hair as you, mustache, and come out dressed up like Jake <laughs> and do the men's scout shit versus Tony Clifton and everybody else as well. You got to take an extra level with Kaufman shit. So people at first had no clue if uh, Clifton and Andy were or weren't the same person. So uh, Andy, after accepting the role on Taxi, insisted that Clifton be hired as a guest role on the show. Yeah, so basically... As Nick pointed out, Andy didn't he didn't want to do taxi, but Shapiro convinced him and then he had demands. So he got his uh one of his specials. And then the other condition was that Tony Clifton had to be hired, but he had to have his own contract in his own parking space. And the story goes that Clifton lasted uh in the movie it, it makes it seem like it was one day, but in reality it was about two or three days. And apparently he actually tried to do good, but then he would just fuck up. He, he brought uh, some hookers in on the third day. He was scheduled to be Danny DeVito's brother on the show. It, it, he committed so hard to it, it but it, it just wasn't meant to be. And poor, poor Tony had to be escorted off the lot. Some of my favorite bits of just to get an idea of Andy's weird fucking ass. Um, he would go on stage, eat a bowl of potatoes, and get in a sleeping bag and sleep throughout the rest of his act. He would go on stage and eat an entire bowl of ice cream and then have a tape recorder that he hit play on that had audience reactions laughing and cheering for him while he did it, which killed at the improv. Uh, his Great Gatsby bit, he would wash his clothes in a washing machine, do his laundry on stage. This is my absolute favorite. This one didn't talked about too much, but this is fucking genius. Okay, Andy would, he would show movies on his show sometimes, and there's a infamous film, Birth of a Nation, Kind of tells the whole story of uh, Civil War up to 1917. Racist as shit. D.W. Griffith's famous movie. But there's a scene that uh, recreates Abraham Lincoln's assassination. And Andy would tell this 100% straight. He would tell a story how this pioneering filmmaker had one of the first film cameras. And he had set it up at Ford's Theater to record the play. And then in the film it shows John Wilkes Booth shoot Lincoln and run off stage. And Andy would play it. Like, they actually captured the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And after he showed it, they, he would bring everybody together, and they would have a prayer for Abraham Lincoln, and people would cry and embrace and be totally worked over by Andy selling them that this 1917 black-and-white film, because it looks kind of, you know, sketchy, and there's uh, cigarette burns and scratches, that this was the real footage of Abraham Lincoln getting assassinated, and he made that work. And that's just the bonkers type of shit that he would commit to and win over on people. That, that story just kills me. Now we get into why we are covering Andy Kaufman on Tim Bell Pod. As a nationally touring star, Andy would go town to town doing his live shows, and when you're as famous and well-paid and talented as Andy was, you can pretty much do whatever you want. So Andy did wrestling, women's wrestling. He said he wanted to bring back the carnival days where a wrestler would come out, offer anyone in the crowd $500 if they could last five minutes with him. Andy put up his own money to challenge women, proclaiming himself intergender wrestling champion of the world. And to explain Andy's gimmick a little further, we now go to Tim Bell Pod's resident sexist and a man who once saw a picture of Susan B. Anthony and said, smile for me, baby. Micah J. Loving. Well, see, and <laughs> well, basically, Andy didn't think too highly of women and he knew that would get him cheap heat. 
And um, women are very good at raising the babies and uh, scrubbing the potatoes and washing the carrots. I think I switched those up. There's nothing to argue against that. But, you know, when it comes to, like, the, the mental acuity that it takes to get in the wrestling ring, the women just don't have it. So they should just go back in the kitchen and make the sandwiches. And I don't want to be the guy who's explaining kayfabe on a pro wrestling podcast. But, of course, and this was all a bit to Andy. He was a sweet guy. and didn't really think this. <laughs> Oh, that was such a sweet disclaimer. <laughs> so Andy began wrestling women during his actual like stand-up show using his amateur wrestling background as well as having some plants in there for fun. He'd had over 300 matches well before his famous days of Memphis wrestling. Over 300, I've heard up to 400. But then when you look at some of the stuff and some of the shows and he would wrestle like up to nine women in one night. Yeah. It would add up pretty good going from college to college to college. And the thing that I read, when he first started doing this, he was so over his latka and everyone loved him going to colleges. And he would do uh, the Great Gatsby bit or Old MacDonald, all these things where it's it's very uh, kid-like and Andy was big on that. Just making people feel like a kid and bringing joy to everyone and coming together. But then he would hardcore transition into the dirtbag heel character shitting on women all over the place and then they would turn on him and he would get massive fucking heat just out of the blue from everyone loving him to like fuck you andy so as andy always did with his bits he wanted to take this to the absolute extreme so he began poking around the wrestling world trying to get this on a big stage uh, i don't even know how to put this into perspective like andy kaufman was a household name it would be like if Seth Rogen suddenly started pro wrestling, but like he was like dead serious about it, you know, or like Matt Damon did a run in the UFC. It was just, it just didn't fucking make sense. Kaufman was turned down by Vern Gagne, and he even approached Vince Sr. of the WWF. I, I assume both said something like, Mark in my day, and declined Andy's offer. However, it was at a WWF event that Andy met PWI's Bill Apter. They became pals, and Andy would regularly hang out at Bill's apartment, watching wrestling, having long conversations about it, with Andy expressing his desire to be part of wrestling. So Bill Apter hooked Andy up with a chance to do it, something Jake Manning still refuses to do for me. Well, why don't you go hang out with Bill Apter then? <laughs> He'll get you in. <laughs> I remember watching an Al Snow shoot interview for like a couple seconds because I can't stand to watch more than a few seconds. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that was that 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 was a Mick Foley bit. Um, but <laughs> uh, Al was talking. He was talking about Bill Apter. Like his name came up, and and Al Snow goes, uh, "Bill Apter, you know that psychopath." <laughs> and I never laughed louder because I was supposed to go over to Bill Apter's house and pick up these magazines before a wrestling show. Like I was just supposed to pick them up, grab them and go. And we, we paid for them in advance. All I gotta do is just pick them up and go. Yeah. And I've picked up multiple things that we've bought online from people's houses and over the years or dropped stuff off and it's never taken more than five, 10 minutes. Well, when I went to Bill Apter's house to pick up these 80 to 100 magazines, this motherfucker thought I was gonna hang out with him all day. <laughs> 
he had stuff planned. He had an itinerary. Whoa. He was throwing like slides to show me. He was doing impersonations. He showed me his care home karaoke setup. Uh, he uh, he just took us around. Like, let me show you this, and let me do this, uh, uh, and I'm just like. I have a show to go to. Like, and also, better too, I have a life to get back to, Bill. Like, But I'm sure Andy loved every bit of it and loved hanging out with him. And I can't imagine Bill Apter has been any different over his entire life. And if you've hung out with Bill Apter for more than five minutes, uh, you've probably heard at least three impersonations before you get to the five minute mark that's just <laughs> how bill is i'm sure those two doing impersonations back and forth can you imagine those two bill doing a dusty Rhodes impersonation and andy doing his elvis presley impersonation <laughs> back oh, and forth man. like that's probably what they did is they hung out and did impersonations of famous people the whole time i would be down as fuck to hang out with bill after you call me up bill there's also, uh, right around this time, if you want to see something weird and rare, go on YouTube and you can uh, type in Vince McMahon interviewing Andy Kaufman. And I think it's from 79. And it probably was a show he probably inquired about doing the bit. But you get to see a very young Vince Jr. Inter interviewing Andy, and it's it seems like it's not real. It's pretty cool. Hello, WWF fans. This is Vince McMahon, and I'm putting on a voice that makes you think I'm actually human and a regular <laughs> ring announcer. And deep down inside, I'm a crazy, insane billionaire. Just haven't made a billion dollars yet. But don't worry, I'll be a massive piece of shit, and I will make a guy who's had leukemia travel through a pandemic just to be down so he can win a championship belt to make me happy and ensure that my streaming service and all the big TV contracts that I make so I can keep piling up money and piling up money. My goal is to make so much money that I can stand on top of it, look out above everybody in Florida and flip off Dana White as he gets kicked out of Florida because I am the one that made professional wrestling essential in Florida. Vince McMahon, you're so stupid. Bill put Andy on the phone with Jerry Lawler as the Memphis territory was the most likely territory that was going to deal with Andy's crazy ass ideas and, and the whole circus environment of, you know, what Memphis was. Well, I like that Bill after basically the way he always describes it is Andy talked about how Vern turned him down, how Vince turned him down. And Bill's like, oh, they'll let you get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you could totally do that for sure. Jerry, 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 Lala, they'll let you do that shit for sure. So you may think that the entire Memphis angle was planned out in detail every night, every move laid out to a T, but everything that would unfold would more or less be because of great improv by Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler, who would soon yes and their way into one of the greatest angles in pro wrestling history. Well, Lawler, too, he's one of the best, as we've said on Patreon bonus episode, he's one of the best at improving in the ring. And I'm sure Jerry felt Andy was no threat to him whatsoever. And if he wanted to do something to Andy, he could make that happen. Like if he wanted to slam Andy at this particular moment, he was going to slam Andy. And, and I, and I think Lawler had that confidence that no matter what happens, I have this. And I think Andy to an extent had enough respect and trust in Jerry himself to know that he's not going to do anything dangerous to me. He's not going to hurt me any different than anybody else that would normally do professional wrestling he's going to do what's right and there's a considerable amount of trust between those two individuals and two amazing improv performers you couldn't couldn't have in the ring better than those two 
Kaufman wrestled twice at the Mid-South Coliseum in 1981 with the second match sowing the seeds to the feud with Jerry Lawler. He wrestled a larger, tougher woman named Foxy with a solid takedown offense, and uh, she almost actually beat Andy. So Lawler took her, he trained her, they set up a rematch, and she almost won again with Andy pulling out the W, but after the match, he started roughing her up. So Lawler rolled in, pulled Andy off of her. So Andy just rolled with it. He confronted Lawler, who shoved him, leading to Andy threatening to sue him. Do you think this bit was planned out or this was all improv in the moment? But either way, people went fucking nuts. Oh, this this had to be something that they were going to get to. Like everything else before might have been a little improv, but like, no, no, this is the, this is the point we're going to get to. And this is this is what we need to get. And this is what we need to happen. I'm sure this is what was discussed. And this was maybe the only thing that was discussed. From here, they get into some pretty legendary Lawler versus Kaufman promos. I will just throw this out here right now. Andy Kaufman was the greatest hill in territory wrestling history. <laughs> change my mind. Wait, wait, wait. You can't change my mind because it's fucking truth. There's one delivery he has where he says, I'm from Hollywood. And it is the most <laughs> arrogant fucking delivery <laughs> I've heard from a heel in almost ever. And it also plays upon something that was very prevalent, especially in the Memphis territory, the Memphis territory at the time that Andy was there was gaining a lot of steam. And some would argue that Andy was the reason that it gained as much steam as it did late 82 to 84, uh, was really a big heyday for, for Memphis. Um, and you know, Andy was in and around at about that time and really kind of kicked it off a little bit in that period as well. And, there was a bit of, even though they were selling out every night, like people still look down on their nose at Memphis, obviously, because Bill Apter's like, oh, yeah, they'll let you get away with your dumb shit. You know, like where like Vern and Vince, they are like, nope, this is the way wrestling is done. And we're this and we're that. And we're one of the big leagues. And we're not going to have that happen where Memphis would let anything fly. But everybody in that Memphis area is like, no, our wrestling is better than Vince McMahon's wrestling. But much in the same sense that there's still that sentiment today in the Carolinas they're like oh Jim Crockett promotions was far better than what Vince Jr. was putting out you know it's there is that sediment and it, that very much existed in Memphis and of course Memphis being you know not Chicago not New York not LA it, you don't think that that was shoved down their throats a lot uh, even, even to an extent that you know it, it was it was considered the memphis territory not not nashville where they might got a little more respect like even nashville saying we're better that we're bigger and better than memphis was so it was like this small small city and, and they always felt like they always had a chip on their shoulder to an extent and the idea of somebody from hollywood coming into this rural type city much in the same sense that charlotte was at the time looking down their nose at them it's really no different and there's that attitude and that bias towards people in hollywood you want to wrestle me you want to wrestle me my infant style my favorite thing was the the like matter of fact this is obviously true way that he would deliver all his like what i guess is now considered cheap heat where he was like yeah of course you're very stupid duh you're from memphis tennessee like of course you're a hick what do you what do you mean like obviously like uh, that was like a whole different level instead of just grabbing the mic and being like you dumb hicks you know or whatever 
it was a level of i believe this so much that i'm just talking about it like the sky is blue or my shoes are red or yada 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 because he's an he's an actor yeah. and that's something that i noticed when david arquette started doing a lot of wrestling spots with northeast wrestling and he would film promos and seeing him do a promo with a pro wrestler People will say what they want, like, oh, David Arquette, he's a shitty actor, he's a B-level actor, but he's still an actor. Good, you put man. him against one of the better promo, you put him against a good promo guy in pro wrestling, he's still going to be far better. And the things that he said, you believe far more because he's a professional actor. And that's something that I really picked up with Arquette. And that's the same thing with, with Andy, is that he's trained as an actor, as a performer, and works out that muscle all the time where you know as a pro wrestler you kind of spend 10 percent on the acting you spend 25 percent on your body you spend 15 on your merchandise yeah you, know, you spend another 10 on your catchphrases and then you spend the rest of it all in your entering work and understand the psychology of professional wrestling so you're just kind of split all over the place for someone who's just solely focused on the actual performance part of professional wrestling and have that skill set it's they're leaps and bounds above everybody else and it's very noticeable also just coming from a heel perspective the fact he got turned down by Vern and vince but then memphis picked him up putting him in a location where it was the perfect spot to make fun of southerners which is just the easiest thing to fucking do i mean if he goes to new york what's his angle gonna be there uh if he goes to well there's still there's still that east coast west coast bias you could say i'm from hollywood you guys live in this dreary rat race right? of a town you live in cages and you look upon a park where my entire city is a park he, he, he would adjust it how he adjusts it but it memphis you're right is the best spot for him to do what he wanted to do right so all the videos, all the threats of suing, all the shit talk led to April 5th, 1982, in front of 8,000 fans in the Mid-South Coliseum, the by God blue chipper who played five seasons at Saturday Night Live would step into the ring with Jerry the King Lawler. And this match even had lead up on a letterman before it where he interviewed Kaufman in the green room and piped in a Lawler promo package to hype this match up. <laughs> I mean, talk about maximizing the little stuff that you do. Like, they know what the build is, is Jerry finally getting his hands on Andy. They have antagonized the audience because there's that, that question of like, you know, how are we going to do this? And I'm sure a lot of people who bought a ticket were like, ooh, how are they going to get out of this? Is Andy going to like chicken out and then all of a sudden the mummy or Bill Dundee is going to come out and then that's going to be a match and, and it's going to be a handicap match that way. Like how, how are they going to creatively get out of this? Surely Jerry Lawler is not going to give a wrestling move to Andy Kaufman. Surely he's not going to. And just that slow build to like, okay, well I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you a headlock and just that idea. And then Jerry's just expert crowd psychology when he, waves that finger to let him know that this headlock that he's got doesn't mean anything just makes you salivate even more like what's he gonna do and then when he picks him up the place goes crazy because they they were waiting for how this was going to end in some sort of schmoz how are they going to get screwed out of jerry not getting his hands on andy because you're like this guy's an actor surely he's not going to get thrown around 
like everybody else does as a wrestler. So when they actually pay it off like that, that's that's what I think is incredible. And then this brings it back like that, that's what you see now with celebrities when they go on Raw. It's like, okay, what smazzy way can we make them look good and make our guys look dumb? Like that Kevin Feather Federline John Cena match where like Federline pins John Cena like K-Fed, like, people didn't like him. Yeah. Imagine K-Fed taking a belly-to-back suplex from John Cena or taking the attitude adjuster. Like, the place would go crazy. The The unselfishness of, of Andy to do that and understand that that's what people want at the end of the day, that's what he was searching in professional wrestling. Make these people so mad, but then pay it off in the end as opposed to, well, I'm a celebrity. I need to look good at the end of it. Like, that unselfishness is what impresses me the most about this entire match you think in the history of pro wrestling there has ever been a bigger response for a side suplex like all this build up all the promos led to this one perfect moment where all he did was pick him up and the crowd brains exploded like it was punk running off with the belt at the end of money in the bank you know and it was just he did a very basic move to him and it just shows like i think Andy and Jerry's work to building this moment without ever stepping in the ring. They didn't think they were going to see that. That's the thing is they saw something that they didn't expect or think they were going to do. And that's just the brilliance of it. And to people who haven't seen it, the fact, the bump that he takes, yeah, he takes a back suplex, but he lands on his neck and his head. It's like a backdrop driver from Dr. Dusty Williams in like all Japan in the nineties or something. It, it crumples him up it is nasty as fuck. So uh, Andy gets hit with a suplex, and then Jerry picks him up, hits him with a pile driver, which was a banned move in Memphis at the time because that gives Andy Kaufman a DQ win over Jerry Lawler. Jerry then hits him with another pile driver, and Kaufman's selling is great. He he does it's a, like professional level selling. He fucking gets it, and then he's he's wheeled out on a stretcher, rushed off in an ambulance. Lawler tells the story that. Andy's out on the mat and he won't get up. The ref tells him to get up. He won't get up. And then Andy tells them to get him an ambulance. And then Lawler has to tell him through the ref that you're going to have to pay for it. and It's going to be $250. And then <laughs> they do the whole stretcher ambulance act. And part of me, Lawler was telling this story. It almost seemed too good to be true. Jake, do you think that's something that could happen like that? Or the whole ambulance bit, that'd be have to be planned, right? Or... No, that that seems very plausible. I'm sure the Mid-South Coliseum required you to have an ambulance there, but I'm sure it was more of a situation of, well, if you use this ambulance, it, it costs $500. So I, I'm sure there's multiple times where Bill Dundee like, hurt himself and was like, no, 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 I'll drive myself. I'm not, I'm not going to pay $500 to <laughs> yeah. take me in an ambulance. Or like, oh, I got to make it out of the town. Sorry, I got to go here. Like, no, no, no I got to make a show tomorrow. So... Um, yeah, so I'm sure they, they were required to have it there and probably paid him $25 an hour, but an actual ride to a hospital probably cost some money, and they were very reluctant to ever use that. But I'm sure the building required him to be there at least. So I, I don't think it, I think it was definitely something in the moment and definitely showed Andy's commitment to the whole bit. The cut from the ambulance shot of it leaving the arena to Andy in bed with like a medical chin strap, and he's sitting there and he just goes, I always thought wrestling wasn't real, but apparently I guess this one is. <laughs> it's just, it's it's perfect in protecting the business and 
hey, that's what got, you know, ABC news coverage and newspapers all around the country to report like Andy got seriously injured by Jerry Lawler. The levels that he would go through to protect kayfabe and pro wrestling were like he's like an old timer from like the 40s who's like still <laughs> selling a like nagging knee injury or something you know like and the thing is too is jerry lawler's talked about this that promoters across the country were calling jerry sending letters to him thanking him for sticking up for wrestling and beating up this hollywood actor <laughs> and, and breaking his neck for real to protect the business and what he did w was good. So he, they worked everybody. The guys that were the promoters and setting up all the angles, they got worked in, in the end too. Like that's how much, how over, how well this was done that even people inside the business, deep inside the business, believed them. Andy would show up back in Memphis wearing a neck brace, cutting a live promo saying that he's leaving Memphis and he's never coming back to a massive pop. But Andy would be back, but not before he and Jerry went on the David Letterman show. One quick little thing before we get to that. Also around this time for Andy selling his neck injury, I wasn't able to confirm this, but I heard there's an episode of Taxi where written into the episode, Latka has a neck injury, so he wears the neck brace on an actual episode of fucking Taxi. <laughs> That's fucking insane. <laughs> So Andy and Jerry were booked for two segments. Segment one was supposed to be showing the clips of Andy and Jerry, the wrestling matches, the promos, having some laughs. Then in segment two, Jerry and Andy were supposed to make up and they were going to sing What the World Needs Now is Love. <laughs> uh, but that posed a huge problem. A face and a heel making up on national TV would kill their angle forever. So they come out, and of course, the stupid Hollywood smarks cheer for Andy and Boo Jerry. <laughs> they do the opening segment, showing all the clips as planned, and then they went to commercial. They came back, and Andy started going in the opposite direction. Him and Lawler traded some insults, and Lawler, knowing this was their last segment, this was their last chance to sell the angle, took action. Without planning it, without talking about it, Lawler stood up and slapped the fuck out of Andy Kaufman. The way that uh, Lawler tells it is they had kind of talked about maybe doing the fight, but then went against it. Yeah. But then on air, there's the moment where Andy's asking him for an apology. And I think his line is like, if you're the man that you think you are, you will apologize to me. And Lawler says in that moment, he just kind of said, no. <laughs> and so turning that down, that apology then turned into the whole violent altercation. And it's violent. <laughs> I've, I can't say in my 38 years that I have seen another man slap another man <laughs> that fucking hard. Like this slap is goddamn fucking. The only thing that's a close second is John Cena early in his SmackDown career, smacking the shit out of Chris Jericho. That's the only thing that comes close. But like Chris Jericho stayed on his feet, but like Andy gets thrown ass over tea kettle and Lawler, like doesn't like just slap him. It like cups underneath of his chin and lifts him up <laughs> off the chair a little bit. Like it's, it's jarring to see. Like I've never, uh, Jerry's a nice enough guy. I've never seen him as an in intimidating, like super, like that level of anger and to the point of like, I will end your life. 
like that that I've never seen that out of Jerry Lawler. There's always been a bit of like, oh, he's angry, he's mad, uh, he's Jerry the King Lawler, he's fired up. But to that level of, I will knock your fucking <sighs> head off your shoulders is just a level that is incredible. And I think it makes it even better. After the slap, Jerry goes back to his dressing room, kind of expecting to get arrested because Andy's not going to stop and be like, no, he was just kidding, you know. Um, to his surprise, an intern comes back and asks Jerry if he wanted to do a third segment where Jerry comes out and explains the situation. That's when we get Andy's tirade of swearing live on the David Letterman show. <laughs> So security escorts Jerry offset after that because Andy was had to call the police in the situation. Uh, Lawler didn't hear anything from Andy or Letterman's people that night. Show aired. They bleeped it out. They showed everything, and we got the continuation to this amazing feud. And one of the best little details is they don't bleep Andy out. Every time he cusses, they do like a cuckoo. They do a cuckoo clock type thing to just show how bananas Andy is. And also what made it seem so real to everybody else is that Andy would never cuss in real life. Uh, rarely at all. And if you listen to the uncensored one, Andy's just motherfucking asshole, bullshit, fucking, fucking <laughs> everything. So Lawler even talks about how in the moment, the slap and everything was a work. But when Andy started cussing... And he was so committed, and he was so angry. For a second, Lawler was like, oh shit, is he going to sue me? Doing the cuckoo bird beeps instead of regular beeps is the most <laughs> David Letterman thing ever. <laughs> so in January of 83, we get an escalation in the feud. Lawler was taking on Nick Bockwinkle for the world's title when a masked Jimmy Hart interfered, or so we thought. An unmasked Jimmy runs out, again distracting Lawler, getting him rolled up for the loss then they take off the mask to reveal andy kaufman from what i gathered jimmy hart had just been wronged like people get wronged in wrestling and hated lawler and they just kind of joined up to you know two people screwing over lawler is better than one there's always this this deep hatred jimmy hart versus jerry lawler because he jimmy managed jerry and then when jerry broke his leg playing tackle slash touch football with Jerry Calhoun, the top star in the territory was down. So if you don't have the top baby face, you got to create a new heel. So you had Jimmy Hart say he's got a new king of wrestling and Jerry Lawler's to the glue factory, much like every racehorse that breaks his leg. He's now the top heel. So it's it just perfect because you always have this manager and there's always this chase of trying to get your hands on Jimmy Hart, trying to get your hands on Jimmy Hart, trying to get your hands on Jimmy Hart. And he's just got a new person to get in his way, new person to get in his way, new person to get in his way. And the idea that he would team with Andy, who Andy's trying to get his revenge on Jerry. It, it just fits. It's like the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. And it's basically how they've come together. Wow. Jake's answer was much better than mine. <laughs> With Jimmy Hart in his corner, Andy and Lawler would continue to trade promos, building up a match May 2nd, 1983, where Andy would face Jerry again, this time in a handicap match, with Andy bringing along the Colossus of Death, who was Duke Myers, who had a solid career in the NWA as well as Stampede Wrestling. Oh, and Duke Myers? Super fucking awesome dude. Met him at Cauliflower Alley. Oh. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Just cool guy. Great insight. 
would fuck with you a little bit like the old timers would, but it was kind of like a playful thing. Like I'll never forget, you know, we were wrestling, we were doing our stuff and, you know, cause we're young kids. We we're doing all kinds of stuff, you know, tilt to whirls and hercarons and cross bodies at the top. All, just a bunch of stuff that was blowing the old timers minds. And Duke pulled me and some of the other high spots interns over and he goes, Oh, so you kids uh, like to do all those high spots. He goes, but I bet you you kids don't know how to do a flying toehold. <laughs> what? And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, flying toehold. I invented the move. And he goes, I'll show you right now how to do it. And we're like, what's this old man going to do? And he goes, here, we don't even get the ring to show you. I said, stand over here. So stood right in front of Duke. And Duke looked right at us and put his toe right on our toe. And then started flapping his wings. <laughs> <laughs> flapping his hands like he had wings. <laughs> and I go, see, flying to hold. <laughs> awesome dude. Uh, Duke Myers, solid, solid fucking dude. Yeah, that joke deserves some claps. That, that, was, that was awesome. So Colossus pretty much knows sells everything from Jerry before Jerry makes a big comeback. It's very similar to the time I wrestled Zane Riley, as Zane Riley oh, actually involves me in pro wrestling, Jake. Nick, do you want me to read uh, the opening uh, note that I have on this match? Colossus no-selling everything and lumbering around like he's fucking Frankenstein. Is that you, Nick? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Great minds, blah, 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 blah. So uh, Kaufman would sneak in and kick Jerry in the ass when he was in a headlock. It was was so fun. It's just so brilliant. He finally got his hands on him. And then, uh, see, Lawler takes the upper upper hand and as they said beats the stew out of him colossus makes his comeback and tags in andy who slaps a beaten down jerry lawler until andy misses a big knee pushing colossus into the ropes getting him hung up andre the giant style uh lawler beats down andy until jimmy hart gets colossus untangled uh andy rolls to the floor while the colossus of death gets pile driven pile driven pile driven takes a pile driver so andy's two and oh now yeah he's two and oh so after that we get that famous scathing angry andy kaufman promo that gets shown so often oh i'm gonna sue you Ah, i'm gonna you're not gonna be able to eat lawler yeah yeah then andy would come back that summer for a few matches and i think a lot of these don't have footage to them there is a uh all from the weekend july 4th through july 7th a bunch of handicap matches Andy and Jimmy Hart beat Jerry. Andy and Rick Link beat Jerry. Jerry beats Andy and Ken Patera. Uh, Andy and Rick Link beat Jerry again. And then Jerry beats Andy and Ken Patera again. I assume these are off TV. Just work some matches, get some house money. Well, the story is basically Andy had an open door policy with Memphis. As much publicity as they got and as much good business as he was doing for them he basically asked like can i just come back whenever i want whenever i got like free time a a break in my shooting schedule break in doing whatever can i just like just show up and they're like absolutely so sometimes some of these matches they were they were just like spot shows and house shows that they were just running and they would be like okay this is what the matches are going to be yada 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 and then andy would walk through the door and they'd have to go oh shit we have to change the whole card now because andy's here so it was a lot of a lot of times like that where they would be like Andy would just appear and he'd be in Memphis and he found out they had a show in town X and he would just show up and they were like oh well we have to do something we have to we have to get you on the card you have to 
you have to do something and they would always make room for them get them in there and of course that's going to help your house show business that's going to help your spot show business because if you are walking in you know paying a ticket and you just think you're going to see a regular championship wrestling from memphis match and all of a sudden oh shit fucking andy kaufman latka from abc tvs here at this non-televised event like i gotta make sure that i show up all the time this idea of surprises happening on spot shows these surprises happening on a lot of the house shows the untelevised events it incentivizes those people to make sure that they don't miss a show hence why the territory kind of saw a boom because they never knew when they were going to see Andy Kaufman, like, I got to make sure I go every single week because he wasn't even advertising. He just showed up. So it's, it, it incentivizes your house shows. Then all of a sudden you go to the show. I'm like, Oh, I really like the fabulous ones. Or I really like you know, this wrestler here. And then you're going to come out back each week and, and you're going to get involved in the story. You're going to be interested in the storylines, but also too, with the idea of you never know when Andy Kaufman's going to show up. So as a promoter, the element of surprise and possibility of Andy Kaufman walking through the door, that's, that's a big deal. That run of matches would lead to a new storyline in the angle where Jimmy Hart and Andy Kaufman had a breakup ending in a brutal slap fight. Andy would go on air and apologize to Jerry and offer him 10 grand to be his partner July 1883 in a match against Jimmy Hart and Masked Assassin. Lawler was hesitant at first, but Andy really sells his apology. Jerry shoots him a counter offer. Keep your money, but never wrestle again after this match, which Andy Kaufman agrees to. This is also the first time that Andy's showing up in studio to do uh, the local shows, and he would uh, his promos would turn into, I'm, I do big network stuff, and I don't do this local bullshit and blah, blah, blah. And just to see him go there and commit to doing the local shows in studio with how many people were in those Memphis studios, you think, Jake? Like 200? In the studio? No, not even 50. Damn. Like, like 40. I mean, there's little stands. There's, there's barely anybody there. During the next match, Andy obviously turns hill on Lawler again uh, when he sneaks in and throws a bunch of powder in Jerry's eyes, leading to Jimmy, Assassin, and Andy all beating the shit out of Jerry. Somewhere in here... Lawler would hit Andy with a fireball on a TV taping. So Andy Kaufman took a Jerry Lawler fireball. Holy shit. He's just sitting there on a chair, minding his own business, and then Jerry Lawler shows up and just throws a fucking fireball on his face. <laughs> and the way he rises around on the ground, rolling around, oh man, he sells it so good. Then Andy would start sending in tapes to Memphis, making an honest attempt to help the people of the South better their lives explaining how to use things like soap and razors and mouthwash. <laughs> They're the best segments. They're the, the soap segment, uh, especially as a little bonus, that Jimmy Hart brings in Cornette to the feud, but he doesn't show up again. But that's a nice little bonus. But Andy does it so genuine and so sincere. It's like, this is soap. And you just rub it and scrub it around on your body. And you want to shave your armpits, ladies, because we don't like seeing that. He's so helpful. And why people were mad at him. I don't know. So this caused an angry Jerry Lawler to smash the tapes, Andy's personal property, which causes Andy to go ahead and move ahead with uh, suing Lawler. Uh, on top of that, Andy would start training with Muhammad Ali and challenge Jerry to a boxing match. To go up one extra notch, 
Andy helped Jesse Ventura win the Southern title from Lawler. When he quote unquote showed up in a chicken suit, it wasn't him for sure. There's but, no way. But uh, he, he distracted Jerry in a chaotic fuck finish. One highlight you gotta go look up if you guys are, uh, there's on YouTube, they have the Kaufman versus Lawler feud. It's like 30 some chapters all on YouTube. But uh, go to the, if you just wanna see a couple things, go to the end of chapter 22. And it's Andy on the phone screaming at, uh, I think it's Dave Brown, the other guy who was the co-host with Lance Russell back then. And Andy gets so enraged. His screaming turns into this wild gibberish where he he seems like he's legitimately losing his fucking mind. And it doesn't go on for like three to five seconds. It's a good 10 to 15 seconds. He just loses his mind, man. It's so beautiful how committed he is and how much this meant to him. And Dave Brown's reactions are just... They're perfect. Uh, you can also find a really great collection of the Jerry Lawler, Andy Kaufman feud on highspots.com who do not sponsor us. Boom. Yeah, but the, the guy who put that together is on microphone and talking <laughs> as Yay! we speak. Lawler would agree to a mixed wrestling, boxing, handicap match with Andy and Jimmy Hart taking on Jerry November 14th, 83. Lawler would actually lose this when Jimmy Hart loads up Andy Kaufman's boxing glove. He decks Jerry, and they do the old double pin on him with Jerry taking the dirty loss. Yeah, I couldn't believe they let Jerry lose here. I was kind of surprised. And if you want uh, some really good rare stuff that I found, there is a radio interview with Kaufman and Lawler. It's on YouTube. I think you just type in interview Kaufman Kaufman, uh, Hart, my bad. Uh, it is the night before this match on local Memphis radio or whatever, and you get to hear Jimmy and Andy kayfabe a 10-minute radio interview and build up and try to sell tickets for this match. It, it's so damn cool and something you normally don't see old-school marketing-wise. Good stuff. Look that up on YouTube. To retaliate, Lawler would put Andy Kaufman on his turkey list. You take that, you liberal turkey cuck. And that would build up to what would sadly and unexpectedly be Andy's last match. November 21st, 1983, Jerry and Andy Kaufman would have a one-on-one boxing match. The totally, it seems like, ad-libbed song that Andy does, I'm the king of Tennessee, and he seems like he just makes it up on the the fly is something to see. The way he uh, goes full heel at the crowd while screaming belligerently, but then he turns into the nice, normal Andy. He's like, okay, I'm asking nicely, please. (laughs) And then he immediately turns into the psycho heel back and forth like he's schizo. It's it's some fun stuff. Um, I especially enjoyed uh, Jimmy um, wiping down and um, fanning Andy after the first round, which all he did was run away from Jerry. That was a nice touch of comedy there. But yeah, doesn't last too long. What he hits a suplex and the fist drop, and it's kind of it. Yeah, that's more or less game for Andy Kaufman's pro wrestling career. So that's kind of it for Kaufman's run here in Memphis. I think Jerry said they had some promos and stuff in the can, but uh, Andy would get sick not too much longer after this. Um, Bill Apter said this is the biggest angle in Jerry Lawless's career. Do you guys agree with that? All I know is Lawler agrees with that. He still pushes it out there that this was the best thing or the biggest thing he's ever done and can never not speak highly of Andy and the work they did. Yeah, and that's the thing, too. When they got Lawler in to do the movie with Jim Carrey, Man on a Moon, 
the whole time Jim Carrey was fucking with, yeah. with Jerry and and thought that Andy actually hated Jerry because he was just he didn't know the behind the scenes. He didn't do enough research to realize that that wasn't the case and they were actually playing parts. Like he just thought that Andy always was fucking with Jerry and he was always pulling that out of Jerry. And Jerry famously pulled Jim Carrey aside one day and said, hey, uh, I know you're doing some sort of meta method thing, but I just want to let you know that in real life, Andy was actually a nice guy to me. So maybe you should probably start doing that if you want to be all method about being Andy Kaufman. See, I could see Carrie just thinking, like, well, most of the scenes are wrestling scenes, so I'm going to method our relationship as heel versus face, so I'm just going to be a total psycho to him. So in that way, it makes total sense to me. I could see that him taking the angle of when they were in public together around other people that Andy would have sold at, he would have stayed in character as a hill around everyone else. Kind of like the uh, David Letterman show where, you know, Andy was going to have no choice, but to get Jerry arrested because he had to stay in character. So I could see how Jim may have taken that and ran with it, but it's a quick amount of research to, to find that Andy behind the scenes with Jerry was beyond respectful because he's entering this different world a world that he's not the king of that he's not good at so it's you know it's mr lawler it's thank you very much it's how was my work out there what can i do for you as opposed to just being a huge cunt like jim was that entire movie we watched that documentary and i love jim carrey and me and spencer were both like he was kind of a dick right like <laughs> there was a fine line between passionate driven method actor and asshole pretentious dick i mean there's a fine line to balance that stuff like i get that you want to be a method actor and i respect jim carrey's level of of dedication uh what he did but at a certain point you're just being an asshole to like some pa making a 10 bucks an hour like take it down a notch and let the cameraman and the grips and the and the writers do their jobs and, and not be such a disruptive twat you know I, I love jim carrey love him to death he crushed it he was fucking amazing in man in the moon but at what cost you? and then there's the bizarro little time capsule that andy kaufman made with classy freddie blassie that was a parody of a talky art film in the early 80s called my dinner with andre and it was my breakfast with blassie and it's basically 57 minutes of just mocking artsy-fartsy filmmaking with Andy and Freddie Blassie just sitting at a diner, having conversations, being inappropriate with their Thai waitresses, trying to pick up women, and Bob Zamuda puking on people. You nailed it. You absolutely <laughs> nailed 100% of what that movie was. Uh, I covered it in a How Did This Get Booked episode. Yeah, super fucking weird. It always was kind of seen as like, oh, this thing you got to see. That, oh, this is the thing that Andy did with Blasi. You check it out. And I saw it super underwhelming. <laughs> uh, I would suggest listening to how, the How Does Get Booked episode over watching My Breakfast with Blasi. Uh, just see some screen caps and you kind of get the point of it. And that's about as good as you need to say. I, I, I think I enjoyed it more than Jake. I've seen I've kind of got conditioned to watching slow art films, but you definitely got to be in the right headspace to get through it i'm 100 percent on that so it was late 1983 that things took a horrible 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 turn for andy 
At Thanksgiving dinner 83, several family members openly express worry about Kaufman's persistent coughing. Lawler even has a story about Andy barely being able to get through some of his promos because of all the coughing. There's even uh, the Jerry Lawler show where he pipes him in via satellite and they do the whole turkey thing. There's a couple moments where Kaufman coughs in that. And going back and watching it, knowing what happens, it's really like, oh, fuck, man. It's, it's, it, it really hurts to just see the little cough that Kaufman does during those segments. Andy said he had been to the doctor and they said nothing was wrong. But when he got back to L.A., he went to another physician and they checked him into Cedar sinai Medical Center for a series of tests. A few days later, Andy Coffin was diagnosed with large cell carcinoma, an extremely rare type of lung cancer. Of course, with it being Andy, no one believed him. But as the side effects of chemo and the disease overwhelmed Andy's body, people started to take him more seriously. Uh, with all the traditional medicine not working, Andy hoped to cure the illness with natural medicine, with a clean diet of fruits and vegetables. He was just throwing everything at the wall, seeing if anything would stick, but the cancer spread from his lungs to his brain. His final public appearance would be at the premiere of My Breakfast with Blassie, March of 84, where he appeared very thin, rocking a mohawk as the radiation treatments had caused his hair to fall out. The following day, him and his girlfriend and the sister of the director of Breakfast with Blassie, Lynn Margulis, flew to the Philippines as a just last-ditch effort to get Kaufman some help where he was put through a procedure which they called psychic surgery. Nothing worked and sadly Andy Kaufman died at Cedar sinais Medical Center in Los Angeles May 16th 1984 at the absurdly way too young age of 35. You know who else died at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles due to lung cancer? Tony Clifton fucking did in a screenplay titled The Tony Clifton Story, written by Andy Kaufman and Bob Zamuda in 1980. Uh, what do you guys think about Andy's death being a hoax? It's one of those things that I can't really say for sure, because he would be the one to fake his own death, but then never have the punchline at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he would just, that's, yeah, I'm gone. But they talk about like the evidence more. There's a really good documentary called The Death of Andy Kaufman. It's on Amazon Prime. It's like two bucks. It's really even-handed. It lays out all the evidence, and then it uh, backs it up with ways you can easily dispute it. But it, it's, it's good info. TMZ got his death certificate, which you know TMZ will fucking like dig up his goddamn body and be like, look, oh, fucking, yeah. fucking retweet this. Here's a dead body. <laughs> And uh, to add to the conspiracy stuff, there's also, I think it was around 2013 at the Gotham Comedy Club, Michael Kaufman, Andy's brother, was on stage. I forget, it was just kind of an Andy commemorative show. And a woman, a young woman, comes up on stage who claims to be Andy Kaufman's daughter and saying that he's still alive, he's watching the the show right now. It's another one of those weird, surreal things where you're like, you know, it could be true because this is Andy Kaufman or it's just people prolonging his spirit and his love to fuck with people's heads in reality. It's some pretty cool footage to look up for sure. All right. Uh, final thoughts on Andy Kaufman. Of all the celebrities that have come through professional wrestling over the years, 
Andy Kaufman has to be number one because he understood what wrestling was and is kind of. It's not so much this anymore, but the idea of you have a good guy, bad guy, you make the people mad, the good guy comes in and beats up the bad guy. That's, for me, how I, I think pro wrestling operates the best and Andy understood that he came in with as much respect as possible I want to believe that he understood his own fame and recognized that his fame could help wrestlers or a promotion get some traction get some notoriety some national attention um, I, he may not have recognized that but when that started happening I, I think he felt very happy that it did I I, I think he probably if he was alive today which he might be uh would tell you that he loves the fact that jerry the king lawler got some notoriety his career gained momentum after working with him as opposed to it being a detriment i think that at the end of the day i think the fact that andy came into professional wrestling made it a little bit better made it a little bit more interesting for a short period of time i think would put a big smile on his face and exceed anything that he ever thought was going to get out of it where it's probably more like a vanity project or something he always wanted to wanted to do but he ended up making it better than when he found it andy is the most fearless comedian of all time hands down there are funnier comedians there are better comedians but andy kaufman did not give a fuck like he had none of that in him genius brilliant trend setting mold breaking all things attached to his name and all things he 100 percent deserves he's, he's he was just a master i love people who shake up an art form whether it's wrestling whether it's music whether it's comedy people say no you know you have to do this is comedy it's set up punchline it's set up punchline it's it's story with some a big punchline at the end it's whatever and andy came in and was like no this is what comedy is and he took it to just this whole new level it's like crazy to see someone that fucking brilliant and you know there are people who kind of carry this on uh, i think in their own styles you see like the world that emo phillips builds uh bobcat goldthwaite being such an extreme character john door does these fucking brilliant outside of the box bits that are part physical, part cerebral, just genius. Uh, I highly recommend looking up John Doerr on uh, Conan, uh, any of his Conan sets. But Andy's commitments to bits is just unparalleled. Just the fact that to this day, people don't know for sure that Andy Kaufman isn't going to pop out of a box somewhere and be like, ha ha, gotcha, means that he won. You know, he's just, he's a genius. His work in wrestling is insanely good. I mean, he just loved it so much and finally got to do it. He went in with such a deep respect for it. And, you know, compare it to some of the terrible celebrity guest hosts of Raw, where it's just awkward and there's no timing. And it's clear that they never fucking watched wrestling, like the host of the fucking morning show or whatever the fuck they were. Andy's mic work was got tier. The emotion he conjured was untouchable. Obviously, he wasn't a great in-ring worker uh, as he only had like a tad of amateur wrestling. But I think if he would have stuck with it, fuck, he would have committed to that too and got real good at it. I mean, just the way he was able to get all that heat out of a crowd 
it it's maybe a little cheap heatish, but again, he was doing this in like 82, 83. Like he was running with the style at the time. And man, I just I there's no way to sum him up. I do want to tell this really quick uh weird story about Jerry Lawler though. I worked at WrestleCon in Orlando with Jake and I specifically brought my women's wrestling champion yellow shirt and I wore it to WrestleCon. It, at the time, at least, it wasn't like that popular of a shirt. Jerry Lawler walks into the convention, right, you know, at like 7.45 a.m., whenever, before it starts. He looks at me dead in the eyes, and I was like, huh? Huh? Completely <laughs> just fucking no-sold it and walked to his table. I was like, nothing, Jerry? Not even like a smirk? Aww. Nothing? He's like, mate, he looked dead at me and was like, yeah, whatever. And just fucking walked off. Uh, that's uh, Fuck you, Jerry. Okay, so one of Andy Kaufman's most famous bits is The Great Gatsby. Now, the idea for this is he would come on as one of his British characters. He would act very uh, grandiose and big, and he'd be dressed up nicely, and he would start just reading The Great Gatsby. He would read the book. you think the bit was going to end, but he read it until people quit laughing out of confusion, and they started booing and yelling at him. And eventually he'd be like, okay, okay, okay. Do you want to listen to me read this book, or do you want to listen to my fun record? And of course, with Andy being a song and dance man, the crowd would obviously scream, the record, the record. And then he would put on the record, and it would just be him reading The Great Gatsby on the record. (laughs) And everybody would applaud, and like, oh shit, you got us. Anyway, blew my mind first time I heard that bit. So stupid, so brilliant. So, the senior year of my high school year. Spanish 3 presentation. I have to do a project on Venezuela. And I had to get up in front of the class and we had to do a whole fun, you know, end of year presentation. I went up there and started reading all these boring, mundane facts about Venezuela. Hugo Chavez was the president at the time. I nailed the, the droning voice. And then I was like, well, do you want to listen to me read more boring facts? Or do you want to listen to the super happy fun tape? And then dumbass Micah played the tape of me just reading more facts to the class. And I know you're going to think it's bullshit, but I got the biggest laugh. And right then I knew that's how big of a fucking mark I was for Andy Kaufman. Man, when we when Nick told me we were going to do this episode, I got all flustered. Because Andy, Andy means a lot to me. It's stupid. But like I made, the, I was trying to figure it out. Like my list of, we had to do like a Mount Rushmore of comedic, inspirations it would be the simpsons mystery science theater 3000 george carlin and andy kaufman like i think it was my early 20s late teens like i dove into andy so fucking hard man i had all his books all he wrote a bunch of fiction books uh he wrote poetry i got his cd where it's just him with a tape recorder talking to his grandma and he's talking to his girlfriend at the time it's the weirdest shit but i got all these weird personal things because it's that it's that moment when you just you learn about an artist, they hit you, and you just gotta soak up everything, man. So when going back and doing all the research for this wrestling, I fell in love with that motherfucker all over again, man. There's those moments that just like the in one of his first big promos when uh he's yelling about Memphis, Tennessee, and then he brings in the very large woman. And then he takes her down into a headlock and smashes her head into the ground. And then Bob Zamuda has to come over there and pull Andy off. And he's like, oh, she's not going to sue me. She's poor. And just all these moments, Andy's 
doing promos while selling a hurt jaw after Lawler supposedly supposedly punched him with something loaded. I, I was like, man, I remember why I love this motherfucker so much, and it's not just something that I have vague recollections about. So doing this episode was just kind of coming back to me as learning about crazy art and comedy, and it meant so much, man. Watch the Orson Welles interview on YouTube. That's bizarre. Watch the... It's it's called The Real Andy Kaufman on YouTube. It's the most I've ever seen Andy be Andy. And it's just him shooting the shit with a dude. It's it's amazing. It it watching all this stuff, it's so obvious why Andy loved pro wrestling. Why he enjoyed that because his entire act, everything on Letterman, the way he did stuff on stage was pro wrestling. The crowd were the marks. He was in kayfabe the entire fucking time. He was just working that angle for all it could be worked, he had a gimmick. He had different gimmicks, but he worked each gimmick to the very nth degree. Andy just wanted you to feel something, man. That, that, when it comes down to it, like Nick said, no matter the art form, Andy kind of taught me that as long as an art form is getting something strong out of you, maybe you don't exactly like it or would recommend it, but it makes you think about something. It'll connect some emotion to yourself. Or help you grow in a way. And Andy just, it didn't matter. He wanted you to laugh and then be pissed off, but then bring you back and make you happy, which is kind of what comedy, what great comedy does. And I just, I love the art that he did because it was just, it was mad, it was driven, and it was memorable, man. And I just, I fucking love that dude so much. I'm going to read the final page of the Tony Clifton story that Andy Kaufman and Bob Zamuda wrote in 1980. They embrace. Kaufman smiles tenderly at Tony, who winks back. As the spectacular musical number comes to a close, Tony and the entire cast break into the Clifton strut. Tony looks into the camera and speaks. I just want to say one last thing, if I may. If I made just one person happy, it's all been worth it. Thank you, and good night. All right, that is Andy Kaufman. Thank you guys for listening. Hope you're still doing okay out there during all this shit. Let's see. Uh, thank you so much to everyone donating to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash Pod. We had uh, one new person before we recorded this, Jake. Yes, a uh, big thank you to Ryan Martell. I can't thank you enough for jumping on the Patreon. I Actually, as we're recording this, I'll send out your... High spot surprise before high spots closes forever. So, like I said, there's different tiers to the Patreon, but thank you so much, Ryan, for jumping on board. I can't thank you enough. You've been a big supporter of me and PWX, so I'm glad that you're a big supporter of us over here at Ten Bell. Pod. And I want to shout out for Ryan too. Um, check out uh, Martell the God, which is his uh, hip hop name, and also check out Martell's Movie Madness, which he's uh, me and Ryan have bonded. He comes to Vizart Video where I used to work. But he come to a lot of our movie nights, and we bonded over horror movies and weird shit and pro wrestling. And Martell's Movie Madness, he's got a podcast, YouTube stuff. Check that out, too. Ryan's good people. All right. Well, uh, find us at TimBellPod.com. Find us on social media at TimBellPod. You guys got anything before we leave?
Hey, this is Nick from Tim Bell Pod reminding you to please check out patreon.com slash Pod. There you can find some bonus content. You can get a surprise gift from High Spots, even though uh, we pr- should probably quit doing that tier. And uh, you can even uh, tell us who to book next. You can even just support us for a dollar. Whatever you want to do, it is patreon.com slash Pod.